As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolas, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. I'm Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. So last week, when we talked about Mark chapter 11, we began the chapter uh, talking about Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, celebrated on Palm Sunday in the Orthodox Church, well, and all Christian traditions that I'm aware of. And... As Christ entered Jerusalem, we see the beginning of this back and forth between him and the authorities of the city. And the image that's being painted within that back and forth is what his true authority looks like and how it plays out, contrasted and compared with the earthly authority of the leaders that are in the city. We highlighted the state of the temple. We highlighted the state of the people. And this motif is going to continue to play out in chapter 12. In fact, you can really look at chapter 12 of the Gospel according to St. Mark as a continuation of chapter 11. Because we're going to pick up immediately with the parable of the wicked tenants. And within that parable, we're going to see this continuation of this adversarial relationship between Christ and the leaders of the temple, the leaders of the city. And all of these interactions are going to be pointing us further and further in the direction towards his coming passion, which will happen at the end of the Holy Week, at the end of this time he spends in the city of Jerusalem. So with all that out of the way, Let's move forward into Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and let it out to tenants, and went into another country. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants to, go from the, to get from them the fruits of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they wounded him in the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, 
they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The very stone which the builder rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and is marvelous in their eyes. And they tried to arrest him, but feared the multitude, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. So unpacking this parable, there's a lot going on. First of all, this parable of the vineyard calls our attention to a similar parable that's given in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, if I'm not mistaken. And within the parable in Isaiah, what the vineyard represents is the city of Jerusalem, is the children of God. So where the two differ is we see these tenants who are wicked, these tenants who are misusing the gift that they're given. And that's meant to call our attention to both parables. That's meant to call our attention to the hyperlink, if you will, uh, all the way back to the book of Isaiah, which then speaks here through Christ. Because what Christ is revealing in the parable that he gives is that the wicked tenants are the ones who were entrusted with the gift, who were entrusted with this responsibility of being children of God, and yet misused it. And you see this within the Old Testament, within the Chronicles, and within the books of kingdoms. Constantly, you have the people of God, which we need to remember is us as well. It's not just the Jewish people at that point in time, because we are all children of God through Christ. So it's the children of God, it's the people of God who are called towards him. And ultimately, if we're looking at the Old Testament, it's those who are called to give alms, to give sacrifices on behalf of the rest of the world, as well as themselves. They're called to this high calling. They're entrusted with this vineyard. And yet, time and time again, they forsake God. Time and time again, they misuse the gifts given to them. We see this motif, which is going to come up again in this chapter, but it is rampant in these so-called historical books of the Old Testament, where the kings, who are supposed to take care of the widows and the orphans, the lowliest in the community, constantly forgo that responsibility. And when they forgo the responsibility of taking care of the widows and the orphans, who comes usually? Well, it's a prophet. It's a messenger from God sent to tell the people to repent, reorient. And what happens time and time again is <coughs> those messengers are killed. Those messengers are sent away. And... Yet God, time and time again, sends more messengers in to help and reorient his people. 
this is the call that he gives to all of them. Because there's always a chance, as long as we live, to repent. There's always a chance to reorient ourselves towards him. Yet time and time again, what we see in the Old Testament is the people rejecting these prophets. They may reclaim God or reclaim the responsibility given to him, given to them by him for a moment, and yet time and time again they fall away. So there's this constant cycle of forsaking God, hitting rock bottom, if you will, where the whole society is about to fall apart. And then a prophet comes around, shakes everyone awake, and the people reorient themselves towards God for a moment. So this is the motif that Christ is playing out within this parable of the vineyard. He's drawing our attention to the fact that throughout all of salvation history, prophets have been sent, messengers of the Lord have been sent to call his people back to him, and yet this is how those messengers were treated. This is how these representatives, if you will, of God were treated by those who were sent to reorient the people of God to him. And ultimately, what do we see here? Well, there's one final servant. There's a son. And the owner of the vineyard sends that son to try and bring these tenants back into their proper place, back into the state of doing what they were commanded to do by being rented that space, giving the share of the crop that they owe their landlord, if you will. And yet, what do they do? They look around and they say, all right, if we kill the son, then we can take his inheritance. We can take this land that we're already squatting on for all intents and purposes. And so rather than listening to what the son says, we see that they cast him out of the vineyard in the same way that Christ will be taken out of the city. And that's where they kill him. In the same way that Christ will be led out of Jerusalem and crucified. But then Christ ends this parable with a question. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And he immediately answers his question. He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. All too often, this line is used to say, okay, well, the Jews, writ large, gave up their birthright, gave up their right to be children of God because they misused that gift. And that's a misinterpretation of what's happening there. Because as we've talked about, whenever groups come up within the Gospel according to St. Mark, there's not a writ large condemnation of groups because they're groups in themselves. Rather, the individuals who are being motivated within those groups are the ones who fall into temptation, who fall into sin. And the reality that he's not just specifically talking about one ethnic group is highlighted even further because when Christ is offered up, when Christ is condemned and all of the people scream, crucify him, it is Jews and Gentiles alike as seen in the crowd and as seen in Herod, who, uh, rather Pilate, who willingly participate in Christ's crucifixion and Christ's execution. 
So in a sense, there's blood on everyone's hands. We are all those tenants, if we are children of God, who are given charge over this vineyard. We are all given this responsibility, the care for the world that has been entrusted to us. And yet when we misuse that gift, when we distort that gift, ultimately we end up going down in this downward spiral that leads us to not only rejecting the gifts that we're given, but rejecting those prophets, those people who come in and are sent by God into our life to kind of shake us awake. And if we go far enough, we too can be capable of not only killing those prophets, but also killing Christ, killing that most beloved son. And yet we need to remember that he goes off to that passion. He goes off to his death willingly. So even though we all have the capabilities of offering him up in that way, of torturing him, of being participants in his crucifixion, he takes up that cross willingly because in his death and resurrection, we also have a possibility of salvation. As I've mentioned before, until the day we die, and then maybe even after, we always have a possibility of repentance. We always have a possibility of realigning ourselves to the Father, realigning ourselves to the Father through Christ, through embodying his actions, through embodying his word. And if we do that, what we're promised is eternal life. But if we reject that gift, if we run in the opposite direction and do everything that we can to forego that responsibility, well, what's going to happen? We're going to face what will feel like destruction. God isn't a vindictive, evil entity in the sky somewhere who rains down fire and lightning whenever we do something wrong. That's not at all what Christ is saying here when he says that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. But rather, the natural result, if you will, of sin, the natural result of these individuals foregoing their responsibility will be their destruction. Because all of our actions, if we're trying to understand sin, have reactions. All of our actions, period, in life have reactions. Whether they're positive or they're negative is totally predicated upon what it is that we're engaging in. If we're gaining forward momentum and we're engaging in positive actions, well, the reactions to those actions will continue to propel us further down this life in Christ. But if we're spiraling downwards in all of these negative actions that are spurring on countless negative reactions to those initial actions, well, all of a sudden we're overwhelmed in the mire of what we've built around us. All of a sudden we're drowning in sin. Because that's what sin is. It, it's this, it has this cumulative effect. And that cumulative effect doesn't only affect our life, but it also affects the lives of those around us. It affects all those who have to suffer the negative consequences of our sinful actions.
So if we think about sin that way, then it makes more sense when we're looking at the state of these tenants, what's happening. If God's not a vindictive God, if God's not coming out of the sky and attempting to smite these people, and in this metaphor, the landowner is God, well, what we see is that these individuals are bringing this destruction upon themselves because they are, in a sense, casting themselves out of the true garden, out of the messianic kingdom that has come in Christ. And it's for that reason that Christ ends the section here by saying that the very stone which the builder rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. The very stone which we have rejected, the very stone which these tenants rejected and cast out and murdered outside the city, has become the very bedrock, the very foundation that we're all called to set our lives upon, that our church is founded upon. Christ is bedrock, and yet he was misunderstood. He was treated shamefully, and ultimately he was killed. This is the reality that we're looking at, and this is the reason why Christ gives this parable. And yet, what do we see in verse 12, right at the very end? And they tried to arrest him, but feared the multitude, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, so they left him and went away. The they here are the leaders. The they here are the individuals who have already been in conflict with Christ throughout this entire gospel account. And they're so enraged that they want to go and arrest him for the words that he's saying. Because he takes it as a personal, they take it rather, as a personal assault on them. In a sense, yeah, it is. But it's also addressing each and every one of our actions. It's not only the actions of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. It's our actions as well when we misuse the gifts that we're given. And what happens when we have the same reaction? When we have a visceral reaction to shut down whatever he's saying? Well, we too are in that same camp then as the tenants who rejected Christ as the leaders of the day who desired to arrest him, but out of fear of losing their status because of the multitude that around him, they leave him alone and go away. What happens when we put ourselves in that same state? So moving along to verse 13. And they went to him, <clears throat> and they sent to him some of the Pharisees, and some of the Herodians to entrap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and care for no man. For you do not regard the position of men, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a coin, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, 
whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. So breaking down the section, what we see is the Herodians and the Pharisees come up to Christ in an attempt to trap him. And the way that they pose the question to him is by bolstering his ego, in a sense, or attempting to bolster his ego. They call him a wise teacher. They say that he's knowledgeable and he knows all things that are true, trying to lull him, in a sense, into this false sense of security, this false sense of bravado. And they ask a question that will either bring his destruction through the legal forces, through the Romans, or might even bring his rejection through some of the more extreme zealots in the Jewish community. Because when they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar, what they're asking really is, well, should we continue to pay this oppressive yoke? Or is it not lawful for us to do that? Are we called to cast off the yoke of Caesar? Are you truly the Messiah who has come to liberate us from our oppressor? This is the subtext that's buried beneath this question. And yet, instead of turning around and saying, no, don't pay taxes, or instead of saying, yes, pay taxes plainly, Christ says that we must render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And he says this after he asks them a question. And that question is, whose image is on this coin? If the image of Caesar is on the coin, then clearly, if we're understanding a biblical definition of what image means, that is the possession of Caesar. Yet we have a different image on us. And that image is of God, because we are created, if we go all the way back to Genesis, within the image, and we're striving towards the likeness of God. So if that's the case, if the very core of our being is stamped in the same way that coin is, with this divine image, well, what are we called to give to God? The same thing that Christ will ultimately offer to his father through his crucifixion, his whole life. We're called to lay ourselves bare. We're called to orient ourselves entirely towards God. And in that orientation, we are growing into that likeness. We are participating in that image that was already instilled in us and growing it. And when that happens... We're living a Christ-centered life because our goal is to ultimately be in full communion with God. Our goal as Christians is to ultimately enter his heavenly kingdom. And to do that, we need to be able to grow into this likeness. So rather than saying, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, or yes, pay taxes to Caesar, 
Christ doesn't even address the tax issue. He's not saying whether or not it's moral to pay taxes. He just says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If the coin is Caesar's, if his image is on there, well, that's his. That belongs to him. If the things of this world, if we're going to talk about that motif again, belong to this world, and the things that we're called towards in the Messianic age belong to God, well, then we have this deeper understanding of what's going on in this picture. We are called to something that's more profound. We are called to this deeper understanding of life, which is oriented and predicated on a life in Christ. Because as I've mentioned time and time again, a life in Christ is embodying Christ, is mapping on, if you will, to the life that Christ lived and ultimately that will lead us to the Father, will lead us to God. Because there's no abstraction in our relation to God any longer. God has become man and dwelt among us. And because of the incarnation, we have this ability now to relate to him, not only on a human level, but ultimately to grow into being able to relate to him in this divine way. So we need to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This is not me by any means saying, don't pay your taxes. The IRS will come for you and that will be a problem. But this is Christ telling us that we also need to render to God the things that are God's. So we need to think about that practically. We need to think about how is it that we can align ourselves to God and strive to grow into this image that was instilled in us in our very creation. Because that possibility, that image that's within each and every one of us is in itself a calling towards this adventure of a life in him. So moving on to verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, a man must take the wife and raise up children from his brother, for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no children. And the second took her and died, and leaving no children, the third likewise. And the seven left no children. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is not this why you were wrong? That you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they raise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the books of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are quite wrong. So what we see here is another group of leaders within the Jewish community, and that's the Sadducees. 
And this is going to be the only appearance that we have of the Sadducees within the Gospel according to St. Mark. But stated with the introduction of this group that they believe that there is no resurrection. So what that tells us Christians who think of the resurrection as being a Christian motif, a Christian development, is that this understanding of there being resurrection from the dead was something that existed during Second Temple Judaism. Now, you can argue that looking at a Christian text written in the beginning of, well, the end of the first century, that's not proof enough, but there are corroborating uh, documents that you can look at, which are slipping my mind at the moment, so I can't give you any references, unfortunately. Regardless of all of that, we see here that there is this understanding of a resurrection from the dead, a reunion of body and soul. And this group of individuals questioning Christ are expressed as not believing in that resurrection. And yet what do they do? They do the same thing that the Pharisees and the Herodians did in the section prior. They begin to massage his ego, or at least attempt to, by saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the wife and raise up children for his brother. So they're posing this hypothetical situation. It's a ridiculous-sounding situation. And what Christ does is in response says to them, is not this why you are wrong? So immediately he looks at them and he says, even though they're posing this question, he sees their motivation. He sees what's behind the question. It's them trying again to either prove themselves right or to entrap him in some controversy among the people. Because if Christ comes and says, yep, everything that you said is right, there's just no resurrection, well, then they can pat themselves on the back and say, ha, ah, look, we're right. We won. And if Christ says, no, you're wrong, period, well, then they're just going to be angry. And this is kind of the approach that Christ takes in a sense. Because he says to them, is not this why you are wrong? And he paints the picture. He says that you know neither the scriptures or the power of God. And later on, he'll talk about this verse from the book of Moses, the book of Exodus, where Moses sees God in the burning bush. And he says that he is the God of living, not the God of the dead. And yet the names that are listed are the names of those who are physically dead, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, the forefathers. And yet in God, they're clearly alive. What Christ is painting here is an image for us to understand that in the resurrection, we don't really know what life will look like because life is at that point is predicated entirely on the power of God. If we know that we're striving towards this reunion with him, well, that's about all that we know for certain. We know the goal that we're striving towards, but we don't know the exact mechanism. We don't know the exact process. We don't have a systematic process of purgatory and heaven and hell that go into telling us where we go exactly after we die. Now, people may want to debate me on that, 
but I'm coming strictly from the text here with this, and it, that's not what Christ is telling us in this text. What Christ is telling me, in, telling us, rather, and I hope I'm actually listening and understanding this correctly, and if I'm wrong, well, that's on me, and I, I am wrong and willing to accept that. But what seems to be said here in the text is that if we're trying to look for a systematic process of how God brings about our salvation, about how God will raise us in the end of days and allow for us to fully be joined to him, we're going to be very wrong because we can't put God in the box. God put himself in the box, in a sense, by taking flesh and becoming a human being. And he did that so that way we can relate to him. Because, again, if God is some abstraction in the sky somewhere, it's pretty hard for us to be able to relate to him as a human being. Because he's not a human being. Yet we are. And for that reason, he became one of us. He took flesh and dwelt among us. So that way we can have a relationship with him and obtain eternal life in him. If we're looking for a mechanism, there you go. But even if you want to break that down further, there are so many components that come into play that there's no systematic con uh, condensing that we can do. Because if you think about the relationships that you have in your life, how many aspects go into those relationships that you have no control over, or at least that you can't even take an account of because there are just so many different variables. In that same way, we have all of these different variables going on that are out of our control when we're trying to build this relationship with God. And to add to all of that, God is not only a man because Christ is fully God and fully man. So as we relate to the human Christ, we also engage with the divine nature of Christ. And as we commune with these two natures and this one person, what happens is the greater picture of this divinity is laid out to us. And we see that within all of these sections of the scriptures within all these sections in particular that we're going through tonight in the gospel according to saint mark because in the same way that christ through a thinly veiled parable says that he is the son who's being cast out while he's simultaneously the father because he's god the landowner he's also saying here that you're all questioning the will of god that you don't understand who it is in front of you. He's painting this picture in a way where after he's raised from the dead, then his followers are going to understand fully what's happening. But until that happens, we're going to continue to see what we've seen with all of the apostles continuing to fall away. We're going to see those even in the inner circle misunderstanding what's happening. So if we look at the section here in closing, it's easy to fixate on the section where it says they're neither married nor given in marriage 
and try to come up with some system of how marriage is annulled after we die. And it's also easy to try to look at what is the state that we're going to be in systematically when we pass on. Well, we're going to be like angels. We're going to be floating around. Well, again, we need to remember all angel means is messenger. So if we're like the bodies of heaven, the bodiless powers of heaven, if we're like the messengers of God, which we're called to do in our life, well, what does that fully mean? All of these things come into play. All of these things are components, but we can't miss what Christ is saying here in highlighting the thought patterns of the Sadducees. And it's that they're trying to put their understanding of God in this systematic box. They're trying to wrap their head around the process by which God calls us towards him. And they're trying, first and foremost, as we see with the first statement in verse 18, by of that they do not believe in the resurrection. They're trying to prove themselves right. So this is the place that they're coming from. And in the response that Christ makes to their questioning, what he's showing them is, you're off. You're off in the sense that you're coming at this from the wrong way. You're coming at this trying to have control and bolster your own ego and opinion rather than freeing yourself and trying truly to understand what it is that God is trying to reveal to them. So this is the statement that's made. And this is a reminder to us that if we're trying to sit and read the scriptures, it doesn't really matter what I'm saying here in this Bible study. All I'm doing is attempting, again, to wrestle with the text that's in front of me to show you that it's possible for you to do it as well. And it helps sometimes to listen to somebody else who's wrestling through these things for us to be able to process our own thoughts. But that's ultimately what we are called to do. We are called to sojourn through this journey towards Christ and wrestle with how is it that we are called to apply the things that he's telling us to our life. So that's what we're being invited to. We're being invited to come at the scriptures from a humble, lowly perspective, casting our presuppositions aside so that way we can freely move through them and take in whatever it is that God is trying to reveal to us. And when we do that, that's nested within a broader tradition of the church. That's nested within this rich tradition of individuals striving to do the same. And that's why we read those people. Those people are called the fathers of the church. And what they do is they wrestle with what it is that God is trying to reveal to each and every one of us and try to translate that to those whom they were preaching to. So this is what we're called to do. We're called to try to free ourselves of our presuppositions Yes, it's easy, in a sense, for us to try to condense God into a box. It's easy for us to try to find a systematic way of breaking down the divine. But if God is truly the creator of all, 
how are we supposed to put baby in a corner in a sense? You cannot confine God, yet he willingly confined himself. So that way we could relate to him on this human level and ultimately grow into this understanding of his divinity. So all of that rambling aside, I hope there's at least one or two cohesive thoughts there. Uh, we're going to move on to verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord... The Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding and with all of your strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely. And he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any questions. So what do we have here? We have a scribe who, after witnessing all of these debates that people are having with Christ, comes up to him and asks him, what is the greatest commandment? And in response, Christ holds to what is called the Shema, or a Jewish prayer identifying the oneness of God. So he holds to the scriptures in his response. And in articulating the oneness of God, he adds another point. And that point is that if we are called to serve God, who is one, in like manner, we are called to serve and love one another. There is no division between the two. And as we've talked about time and time again during these sessions, that's because we can't learn how to relate to God if we don't know how to authentically relate to one another. If we don't serve our brothers and sisters, then how is it that we can serve God? If we remember what we've been talking about this whole time, we are called to lower ourselves in service, not only to the people that we like, but to all of humanity, in the same way that Christ did that for us. And so after affirming this point that's made by Christ, what is his response to this Pharisee? Uh, not this Pharisee, the scribe, rather. He says that you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him anything. Up until this point, we've seen nothing but confrontation between Christ and the leaders. And we're about to see one more critique of the Pharisees before we end this chapter. Uh, rather, of the scribes before we end this chapter. 
Yet what do we see? We see this one individual who comes up to Christ and questions him with an open heart. And when Christ replies to him, this man affirms that Christ is true in what he's saying. He affirms that he's open to the gifts that he's presenting to him. And for that, Christ responds by saying that he's not far from the kingdom of God. This man is currently in the process of lowering himself, casting off his presuppositions, and truly listening to the things that Christ is trying to reveal to him. And it's for that reason that even though all of these leaders have been highlighted as wrong or adversarial, this one individual is highlighted here to remind us that, again, it's not the groups of individuals that are evil in themselves. It's not even that the groups are evil because they're being influenced by these negative demonic desires and influences that from the outskirts. It's they are participating in resentment. They're hardening their hearts and participating in evils. And through that embodiment, the individuals are turning into a mob, a mob that will ultimately persecute, crucify, and gloat over the destruction of Christ. So the individuals are sacrificing themselves, in a sense, for the wrong thing. They're sacrificing themselves to that mob mentality, which is predicated on the destruction of Christ. And yet this one individual that we see here, even though he's a part of the groups that will be some of the many groups responsible for Christ's crucifixion. Because again, everybody is responsible for Christ's crucifixion. There is not a hand that is free of his blood when we hear the Jews cry out, crucify him, and we see the Gentiles whip and scourge him. In those two groups being identified, the Jews and the Gentiles, within the crucifixion narrative, we see that all of humanity is participating. So it's not an individual group, ethnically speaking, and it's also not individuals in themselves being evil that is leading to his coming crucifixion, but rather it's our individual participation in evil, our embodiment of evil, which breaks down our distinct humanity, which is fulfilled in Christ, and rather homogenizes us with these demonic, in a sense, actions. Yet we need to remember that this individual, who is part of one of these groups, is highlighted by Christ here as not being far from the kingdom of God. So when we're thinking about the way that we live our life, and the things that we're hearing, and what we're wrestling with in the scriptures, and what we're wrestling with in our day-to-day life, are we taking the same perspective of softening our hearts and lowering ourselves to be students and truly learn like this man does? Or are we just kind of glomming ourselves on to the group and moving in whatever direction that the mob decides to move that day? So moving on to verse 35, 
And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I put thy enemies under thy feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And great throngs heard him gladly. So Christ poses all of those who have been questioning him and all those who are around him with a question. And that question is, by citing Psalm 110, how is it that David himself, who is inspired to say, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put thy enemies under thy feet, how is it that if he is inspired to say that, he says that the Lord, rather, well, not rather, that it is said that the Lord, as he addresses in that psalm, is within his lineage. How is it that if he subjects himself to this ruler, that he is his superior, that he is his forebearer? And Christ poses this question, so that way he can invite the people who are around him to deepen their understanding of who he truly is as Messianic King. Because the Messiah that they were waiting for, as we've mentioned before, was a liberator, was an anointed ruler who was going to free them from the physical oppression of the Romans, the physical oppression of whatever force was assailing them. And yet, as Christ allies himself with the Lord, with God, because he is God, what we see is that what we got in terms of who the true Messiah is was so much greater than was initially anticipated. If we were waiting for a military champion to liberate us, well, what better champion is there than the one that will liberate us from sin and death? Yeah, a military victory is great for the people who on the winning side but what happens when the next tribe comes through and steamrolls everything that was accomplished by the first one well there's just further desolation you're on the winning side of history for a moment and now you're on the other side and you're that oppressed force you're that loser yet in Christ what we see is an ultimate victory in the coming of the messianic kingdom, in the coming of the messianic age, we see him achieving this victory through his battle with demonic forces, through his battle with the evil powers of this age, contrasted by the age that has come with him. And so by saying this question to them, he's inviting them to question who is truly the messiah. What is it truly that the Messiah is called to do? And he's not going to give them a straight answer, but rather, as we see at the very end of verse 37, that the great throngs heard him gladly. So the people who are listening to the question that he poses receive it. They may not fully understand what it is that he's saying, because they're not going to understand that until he's risen in glory on the third day but they're at least open in this moment to receiving the words that he's saying. 
And so he gives the people a warning here in the end. And that warning is not to ally ourselves with what is opposed to the Lord, was opposed to this coming Messiah, was opposed to Christ. Because again, the Messiah is standing there right in front of them. And to expand upon that, we will move on to verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and to have salutations in the marketplace, in the best seats in the synagogue, in the place of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. So Christ here is highlighting the actions of the scribes, and the actions of the scribes can be extrapolated into any negative action of those who are given responsibility, those who are given places of authority. He says, beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and have salutations in marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense and for a pretense make long prayers. So what he's saying here is beware of those who don't practice what they preach. We can be saying one thing. You hear me saying that we're called to lower ourselves and we're called to orient ourselves towards God. And I pray every day that at least I'm able to live up to maybe even a tenth of applying that to my life. But if I'm utterly rejecting that call in all of my actions, yet I'm saying something else, yet I'm saying that we're called to this and I'm not striving to live that life, well then, as St. Paul will say in regards to if we do not have love in us, I'm like a noisy gong. I'm just clanging around and making noise, yet that noise has no substance. Yet what do we do with the reality that we're human? What do we do with the reality that we constantly fail and miss this mark? Well, we accept that. We're fallible. We're fragile. But that's not an excuse to stay down every single time that we fall. That's not an excuse for us to stay in the outskirts of life when we sin. Rather, we're constantly called to participate in this process of self-emptying, of lowering, and repenting, and reorienting, and changing our mind and reorienting our bodies towards Christ. Because if we're not embodying what we're called to do in living a life in Him and in serving others, well, then what are we doing? Well, we're devouring widows' houses. As I talked about earlier, what happens in the Old Testament when the kings are transgressing God? Well, they're neglecting to take care of the widows and the orphans. They're neglecting to take care of the lowly who are entrusted under their care. And then in the same vein, as we see here in Christ talking about this, um, the scribes, well, if we're neglecting our call to serve, if we're neglecting our call to love one another as God has loved us, 
and to love and serve God and one another with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul, the very substance of our being, the very core of our being and all of our actions, if we're neglecting that responsibility, well, what are we doing? Well, we're bringing more sin into the world. We're adding to the hardship that people are already experiencing. Because again, our actions have consequences. Our actions will spawn countless reactions. And if we are participating in sinful actions, well, all that will be in the wake of that is further sin that will not only destroy our life, but will also inevitably destroy the lives of others. So this is what Christ is calling us to do here. He's not saying, look at the specific group of leaders. They're so bad. These awful people that existed during the first century AD. No, he's not saying that. He's, telling, he's calling us, rather, to live up to our responsibility. He's calling us to not do the same. Yeah, it's great to be able to have places of honor where you are being exalted. Yeah, it feels great to be able to wear clothes that you know, separate you from everyone else and identify you as being important. But we need to ask ourselves as Christians the question of, well, are my actions to the detriment of others? Or are the actions that I'm participating in inviting others towards a life in Christ, inviting others towards a place of peace rather than further disorientation. And so if we're going around and we're putting on this persona, this veneer of piety, and yet our actions don't match the words that we're saying, they don't match the veneer, well, we're missing the point. And we're allying ourselves with this negative example. So that is what Christ is calling us to do. Christ is calling us to look at the situation in our life. Look at the responsibility that we're given as servants of God. And ask the question of, are we truly serving others? Are we truly loving others? If we say that we love God, and if we say that we love other people, what are the actions that we are tangibly doing to match those words? Because if we're not embodying those words, if we're not participating actively in those words, then we are just a noisy gong or symbol, and there's no substance in them. So moving on to the final section in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums, and the poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she... Out of the poverty, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, her whole living. So, if we sit with what Christ said here, in closing, 
we see in the offering of this widow a prefiguration of the offering that Christ is about to make when he offers his life for the life of the world. This widow has nothing. She doesn't even have a full day's wage, and yet she offers it to the temple. She offers it to God. And we can look at this and say that this is a foolish thing. Why would this woman do this? She needs to be able to take care of herself. Why would she offer what she has, all that she has, to the temple? It's just a building. Remember, Christ was just chastising the temple and the processes of buying and selling. And in the next chapter, he's going to talk about the destruction of the temple. So why is it that this woman is wasting this money? Yet in the same vein that when Christ was asked the question of rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, he didn't identify, he didn't rather expound upon the tax debate. Here, he is not talking about the physical wealth of this woman. Rather, he's identifying her offering as an image of his coming offering. She offers everything that she has to God, freeing herself of the cares of this world, freeing herself of the things that could hold her back in the same way that Christ is going to be laid bare and offered for the life of the world. There's a constant motif in our Christian faith, and it's that if we are going to see a resurrection, there needs to be a crucifixion in the descent into Hades. And it's from that descent, it's from that laying bare and going to the lowest part of the earth, from hitting rock bottom in a sense, that we have a choice in that choices to fully put on Christ as we lay bare and naked or to reject him and wallow in that pain, that suffering, and that darkness. As in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the parable of the prodigal son, we can squander everything that we have and find ourselves in the muck with the pigs Yet we're called to have the same revelation that that man had. We're called to come to our true self and return to the Father. But the only way that we are able to truly participate in that reality is through this ultimate lowering of the self. And that lowering of the self is highlighted here in these final verses of chapter 12, where we see this woman who has nothing offer the little that she has. And that's a reminder to us that regardless of what we have in this life, regardless of where we are and what our circumstances are, we always have some talent or something to give. 
we could be in the worst situation imaginable. Destitute on the street. And yet because of our spark of divinity that we have, each and every one of us, we are still capable of reflecting that same light of Christ on one another. We're still capable of offering that little bit that we have towards the world in service. So we may not have any physical possessions, yet we always have this reality of a life in Christ within us. And that's reflected in the light which shines forth within each and every one of our eyes. If we do not live up to the call to share in this life in Christ with others, to offer what we have out of love for others and love for God and service for others and service to God, well, then we're missing the mark. We're deviating from the ultimate goal that we're called towards. So ultimately, as we see not only in the example of this woman, but in the example of Christ offering his life for the life of the world, we are called to go to that lowly place in our life. But we're not called to do it alone. Yes, hardship is going to hit us. Yes, sickness will hit us. And the realities of life will continue to bash against the ship. And when that happens... We can fear that we're going to fall overboard and we're going to drown. But if we willingly take on that hardship, if we put the work in to put on Christ beforehand, then we'll be able to face whatever obstacle is set in our way. And we'll be able to do it with joy and with gladness. We don't have to hit rock bottom without him and find him in that lowly place. Yet as we see from the countless people who experience him in that way, he's there as well. Each of us is called to go to Hades. Each of us is called to descend into this lowly place. Yet we're not called to do that alone. We're not called to confront the sin and realities of sin in our life without him. And that's why St. Paul will refer to putting on Christ putting on the breastplate of Christ, putting on the armor of Christ, so that way we are protected against the realities that assail us. But we need to remember that we're still going to suffer because Christ did not come to liberate us from the things of this world in the time that he was incarnate. But rather, he came so that way we could have ultimate liberation. And that ultimate liberation is of sin, is from sin, rather. So when he comes again, as we say in our creed, and we are raised in him, if we have put the work in to embody Christ, to put on Christ, to live a life centered in him, then we will experience that resurrection, that second coming, as endless joy. But if we run in the opposite direction, if we 
don't prepare ourselves and we don't desire to have this life in Christ, if we don't serve others and love others humbly, well then, when we're confronted by the love of Christ, the light of Christ, we will experience that as a burning flame, as an eternal hellfire. We are called to live a life in him. And that requires us to go to a lowly place, to lower ourselves willingly and be co-crucified with Christ. And this is the example that's prefigured in this woman doing that like. And this woman offering what she has, all that she has, her whole living to God in the same way that Christ will offer his whole life for the life of the world. So this is a prefiguration of what's to come. As we spend time in Jerusalem, we're going to continue to be reminded of this coming passion. And in verse and in chapter 14, we're going to see his passion begin. So we're preparing the way. We're preparing ourselves for what is to come. But we need to also remember that there is a resurrection at the end. There's a fulfillment of everything that is going to transpire. Christ does not just go into the ground and become like those who are dead. He descends into that lowly place. Yet on the third day, he raises and when he raises and is transfigured in glory, we too are promised to be able to participate in the same. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Thank you all for participating here today live. And until next time, I'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.